Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, and we are going to get right to work. Daniel chapter 3. Now, uh, by way of introduction, let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you have an iPhone? How many here have an iPhone? Look at that, right? How many of you have Androids? I don't want you to feel left out. Okay. Well, you'll be glad to know our app works on both. Um, but that's not the point of my mentioning the iPhone. Let me just tell you a little bit uh, the story behind this, this iPhone. Um, it's a symbol of the classic American success story. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, he founded it at 21 years of age in his garage. And four years later, he took his company public, and on the very first day, their shares were worth $1.2 billion, day one. Five years after that, and I'm cutting through a lot of history here, but five years later, um, Steve Jobs was forced out of his job. Uh, by the CEO that he had brought in, John Scully from Pepsi, from, uh, Pepsi Cola, forced him out of his own company. And so uh, undaunted, Steve went out and he, and he started his own company. He called the, this company Next, like the, here's what's next kind of thing. And they were a product development company as well as a software company. And it was considered to be a flop, but he sold it back to Apple for $429 million. How would you like to flop like that, right? So $429 million, sold it back to Apple. And during this same time, Steve Jobs started a little company called Pixar. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, worth $4 billion, which he subsequently merged with the Walt Disney Corporation. And Steve Jobs, in the merger, became the single largest shareholder of Walt Disney stock. Right, And so ultimately, after he quadrupled his net worth, Steve Jobs returned to Apple and he went on to produce the iMac, the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone. Uh, and, and one uh, industry analyst had this to say about uh, what Apple had done and the products that they created. He said, these products have dictated the evolution of modern technology. Uh, in the process of doing that, Apple became the number one Fortune 500 company with $18 billion cash in the bank and zero debt. Uh, no other company has produced as well and had so much success. Steve Jobs personally, not only did his company do so phenomenally well, but he personally doubled his net worth again to over $10 billion. How'd you like to have that in your checkbook? $10 billion. Now, in 2003, Steve Jobs discovered that he had a rare but operable form of pancreatic cancer. Uh, this is one that could have easily been treated and surgically removed. But he went against his doctor's advice and chose instead to alter his diet and to pursue Eastern religious uh, kind of uh, treatment course um, because basically, you know, he thought he knew better than everybody else. And the decision ultimately cost him his life. And again, you know, Here's the point. Steve Jobs thought he was invincible. He'd had a phenomenal amount of success, had a, a, a great track record. And this guy thought, man, I'm invincible. I know it all. 
And he became, became a victim of his own success, of his own pride, and of his own ego. Now, I share that story by way of introduction because Daniel chapter 3 begins with, with a very similar story. Here you got the richest, most powerful ruler who has ever lived, and he thinks he knows better than everybody else, including God himself, who has shown up in a miraculous way in the preceding chapter to to reveal himself to King Nebuchadnezzar, to show King Nebuchadnezzar all the things that are going to come to pass, and King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he knows better than God, and we're going to see that play itself out here in Daniel chapter 3. The, the only difference here, well, there's a lot of differences, but in terms of similarity, whereas Steve Jobs' folly was harmful to himself, when you're the richest, most powerful ruler who holds everybody's life in your hands, his decision is going to kill other people. That's the threat here. So Daniel chapter 3, we pick it up, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. Now, depending on, on uh, the time and the geography, a cubit uh, was anywhere from 18 to 24 inches. Uh, in this instance, it's probably about 18 inches. And so you're, you're talking about an image that was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Uh, and it goes, up to, goes on to say that he set it up in the plain of Dura. And, and archaeologists have discovered if you go to Dura uh, today, there is actually a mound of dirt that kind of like a platform that would have supported this. It's, it's uh, 46 feet square and it's 20 feet tall, which makes for the perfect dimensions uh, and diameter to support the, the, the statue that's mentioned here there on the plain of Dura. So he set up this 90-foot statue of gold and he set it up on top of a fifth, basically a 50-foot platform. So you, you've got you know, almost a 150-foot image that, that's set up there on the plain. Um, and he set it up in the plain of Dura, verse 1 says, in the province of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he gathers everybody all the powerful officials, everybody who's got a position and power within his kingdom, he gathers them there, you know, look at this image that I have made. And, and now the text tells us there that he made an image of gold. And you can, you're thinking, you know, I don't know how you think. I'm thinking 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. Was this thing gold plated or was it solid gold? And you think, well, it almost have to most certainly be gold plated. I mean, that's a lot of gold. Ancient historian uh, commenting on the, the tendency of rulers to have this opulence and things that they would build out of solid gold, uh, one ancient historian actually wrote about how there was a, a, a ruler who built a statue using 800 talents of gold, which is 22 tons of gold. That's a, that's a lot of gold. So here this king, he builds this image out of, out of gold, and, and he brings everybody together uh, for the dedication of the image. And, and, and that's what verse 3 says. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, in symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, and symphony, with all kinds of music, uh, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore... At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Uh, You, king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Now, we're going to get into next week, you know, all of the, the, the issue of the, the fiery furnace and getting tossed in there and, and the whole bit. Uh, and, you know, just here at the, the latter verses, it stands out to me that, you know, here's these very men that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with their friend Daniel, had, had really saved their lives. These are the very people that couldn't figure out the king's dream and he was going to kill them all if you were with us back in chapter 2. These are the very people that, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, praying, seeking the Lord by the Lord's guidance, by him giving them the interpretation of the dream and all. They saved their lives and this is the thanks they get that these guys go run into the king and they say, hey, let me rat these guys out because we're envious of the power and the position and all that they've got. But, but right now, what I would have you to do, and the first thing I would have you to notice, is the emphasis that God, through his word here, makes in pointing out to us who set up the image. Again, if you go back to verse 1, just notice, it says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. It says there in the middle of verse 1, he set it up. Uh, again, if you go to, to verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says, the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, verse 3, he says there towards the end, uh, they gathered everybody together for the dedication of, here it is, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He's like, are you, God's saying, do you get it yet? He set it up. He set it up. He set it up. We, you know, he, he goes on and on and on. We see it again in verse 5. The gold image there at the end of verse 5. The gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. He says it at the end of verse 7. The gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Who set it up? 
King Nebuchadnezzar set it up. And God's making a point there. I mean, that's you, when you have repetition like this in the word, it's God saying, notice this. I want you to take note of this. See, seven times in these first seven verses, that God over and over again, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar set this image of gold up. Now, here's why God is emphasizing this. Again, if you were with us in chapter two, God had given the king dreams. And, 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 and when he gave him this dream, he, he couldn't interpret it. He, couldn't, he didn't know what it was all about. There's some question as to whether he could even fully remember it. We know it shook him to his core. He was freaked out. He knew it meant something. He didn't know, you know exactly what it meant. And uh, he called all his wise men together. Tell me what, what the dream was and tell me what its interpretation is. And they're all, okay, great. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He's like, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. If I, if I tell you the dream, you're going to lie to me. And so I ain't telling you the dream, you tell me the dream, and if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I'll know that your interpretation is good. And they're like, ain't nobody able to do that. Nobody, no king's ever asked their wise men to, to do what you're asking. It's impossible. The only ones that can do that are the gods. And so the king's enraged. He starts to have them killed. Daniel says, so wait, what's going on? He responds to, to this news with wisdom and counsel and says to, to this chief handler, let me go talk to the king. He's got that kind of access because he's a man of character and quality. And so he goes before the king. He says, you know what? Uh, give me some time to pray and I'll tell you the interpretation. And so he goes and he calls prayer meeting with his buddy, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Get to praying, boys. This is something that, you know, we need God to show up in a big way. God shows up. God gives to Daniel in the, in the night in a vision. So probably gave Daniel a dream and, and gives him shows him what the dream was. God gives to him the, the interpretation. And not only that, God tells Daniel what was in the king's mind when he was laying on his bed before he even went to sleep, which is kind of, I think, sort of the key to the whole thing. Because when Daniel then subsequently comes before King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, hey, listen, let me, let me tell you, I, no man can interpret your dream, but there's a God in heaven who can, and he gave me the interpretation. He told me what your dream was. He told me what the interpretation is. More than that, you know what, King? He told me what was in your mind, what you were thinking when you sat on your bed to even go to bed. Basically, King, you started thinking about what comes after you, what comes next. You started, you started thinking about your own mortality. You started thinking about, you know, what is yet to come in the future. And that's something a lot of times we, we want to just, we want to push that away. We want to, we want to just push that thought out, sweep it under the rug, I'll deal with it later kind of thing. And, and because a lot of us, you know, you don't, you don't want to deal with that. I, I shared, you know, as we were going through that, just so many times I do a, a funeral service, I do a funeral message, and, and you know, in, in the midst of doing the funeral message, I always want to take the point to be able to say, look, I know what many of you are thinking. Because it's only natural, normal for us when we go to, to the funeral or a memorial service of someone that we knew, that we spent time with, that we ate meals with, we think, wow, we lived together in communion. We, we were friends. We, we had meals together. We shared experiences together. And now they're gone. They're dead. And so it, it, it weirds you out. You start thinking, well, when am I going to die? 
I mean, he was here, now he's not, and that means someday I'm, you know, I'm here, and someday I'm not going to be here. And it's only natural to start thinking about your own mortality, and you start thinking about, you know, what, what is it all about, and where am I going when I die? And let me just tell you, if you don't know the Lord, then that can be a very unsettling mental conversation and a, and a walk to take. Because you don't like the answers and the conclusions that you come up with. So this is this king. He's thinking about, you know, his mortality. And he doesn't like that thought. So he goes to bed. God gives him a dream. And basically the dream, God starts to show him. He shows him an image. And, and the image's got, a, you know, this, this gold head. And, and, and it's got, you know, the silver uh, chest and arms. And it's got, you know, bronze uh, thighs and so on. And, and, and you know, he's, he's seeing all these. He's seeing the iron you know, mixed in in this image and all these different metals. And, he, and he's like, I, I don't know what that means, but one after another, these things are happening. And, and basically, you know, then, you know, there's this stone that wasn't cut with human hands that comes and it crushes this image. And he's like, what on earth is all this about? And Daniel, through, through God's revelation, tells the king, here's what it's all about, king. You're the, you're the, the golden head. You're powerful, you're strong, but after you, and then he goes on to describe all the kingdoms that are coming after him. The king didn't want to hear that. That was one of those truths that under the rug dug, man, he doesn't want to deal with that. But now Daniel is telling him through God, look, you have a kingdom and you have power. And guess what? There's a kingdom that's coming after you. And you know what? There's a kingdom that's coming after that. And there's a kingdom that's coming after that. An incredible accurate detail, we from the benefit of hindsight can look and go, wow, nailed it, called every single one except for the the, the fifth kingdom that he describes, which hasn't come to power yet, which is highly prophetic and and all and pointing to of us looking to the last days and these prophecies of Daniel figure very prominently uh, into what's what's yet to come. We'll get into this in, in subsequent chapters. But the point is, God's revealing to Nebuchadnezzar, listen, Jack, your kingdom has a lifespan. It has an expiration date. And, and it, it will expire. And there will be another kingdom after, you, after yours. And there's another kingdom that's coming after that. And there's another kingdom that's coming after that. And, and basically, God's entire point here is to, is to tell Nebuchadnezzar, listen, this is all bigger than you, buddy. You got to understand this. This is all so much bigger than you because all these kingdoms are going to come to an end and ultimately only one kingdom is going to stand and that's the kingdom of God. And so what's happening here in chapter three, and this is, this is the big idea of our message today, hugely important. What's happening here at the opening of chapter three is a fight for dominion. It is a fight for who will have dominion in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Who will he worship? Will he worship and yield to the God of heaven and his kingdom? Or is he going to worship and exalt and glorify Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom, which has an expiration date attached to it? And the answer comes, as we read through the text, that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 
He set it up. He commanded all to worship this image. So we get the answer, which kingdom did he choose? He chose his own kingdom. Point of application for you, just here at the, the, at the threshold of digging into this, is the fact that you, your kingdom has an expiration date too. All of us, our kingdoms, they, 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 some of them larger, some of them smaller, certainly none of us compare to King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Certainly none of us compare to Steve Jobs and his kingdom. Although if, if you come close to that, I'd like to talk to you about a building project. That would be amazing. <laughs> we all have a kingdom, don't we? Every one of us has a kingdom. And your kingdom has an expiration date attached to it. And so we have to decide, hey, who is going to have dominion in my life? Is it going to be me and my kingdom? Or is it going to be God and his kingdom? This is what it always comes back down to. Which kingdom is going to have dominion in your life? See, here's what I want you to know. We were created as worshipers. And God has designed us expressly to worship him. The psalmist said, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. God, in the book of Revelation, says, uh, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Again, the book of Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, when we worship God as he made us to do, then God receives glory and we receive joy. That's the way God has set it up. But there's a big problem, and here it is. The problem is that man rebelled against God, and in our sinful state, we continue to worship, but oftentimes what happens is we worship things instead of worshiping God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, I put it on the screen for you, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, so here in Babylon, we, we find King Nebuchadnezzar erecting a golden image. Now, the text doesn't tell us what exactly that golden image is, but we can reasonably assume that it's a statue of him, that it's an image of him. Again, in his dream, he saw that he was the head of gold. And so what's happening here is Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look, I reject your reality and I insert my own to God. You say that I'm just the head, but there's an expiration date and other kingdoms are going to be established. And yeah, there'll be lesser kingdoms, silver and bronze and iron and so on. But you know what? 
I'm this golden head, and so guess what? I'm rejecting that, and I'm going to build the entire statue, and I'm going to build the entire image out of gold, and say, your image is not the image that I'm going to receive. I'm going to make myself in my own image. How many times do we do that? How many times does God show us something and la, la, I'm not going to hear it, la, 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 and I'm going to see what I want to see, and, 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 and by God, I'm going to make this thing come to pass, right? And we have that attitude a lot of times. We're in our pride, in our arrogance, in, in, in our self-will. We say, I will make the life that I'm going to make, and I don't care what anybody, including God, has to say. Now, that sounds as blasphemous as it is when it comes out of my mouth. And you might not never say that, might not ever say that, but you think it. You think it, and you have within you this part of you that fights to erect your own image. It's part of your sinful nature. See, Nebuchadnezzar creates his own image as he sees himself, not as God sees him. And so, in effect, in just in light of what we just read in Romans, he changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And God emphasizes this point seven times all over, saying, it was him, it was him, it was him, it wasn't me. I didn't make him the way he saw himself. I don't have any intention for him to be the way that he sees himself. It's all him. Nebuchadnezzar makes and sets up his own image, making himself God. Here's my question for you. Take a walk with it this week. What image have you set up? What image is it that you have erected, that you command the worship of? Whether yourself, you want everybody else to worship this image, what is it? See, again, we are created worshipers. You're either going to worship the true and the living God, or you're going to worship someone or something else. And this is hugely important. Everything hinges on this because, listen, idolatry is the underlying root cause of every other sin. Every sin in your life is traced back to the sin of idolatry. Martin Luther was studying the Ten Commandments, and he noticed that the first two commandments related to idolatry. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make a carved image both relating to the, the worship of idols, putting another God before, before him, making a carved image. And, and what, what Martin Luther noticed was, you know, a, these two relate to pretty much idols, and, and the remaining eight are things like, you know, sexual sin and stealing and lying and murder and all. And, and basically, he, he, he surmised that if you never broke the first two, you wouldn't break any of the others. See, because if you're a person who drinks too much or, or you, you're addicted to drugs or, or you're, you're you know, a chronic liar or you're violent or you're, you're a murderer or you're perverted, the, the, the issue isn't that you, that you have those sins. The underlying cause is that you are, in fact, an idolater. See, it's been said that the sin in your life is like fruit hanging off a bad tree. We think, man, I just need to get that bad fruit off of my tree, um, and, and then I'll bear good fruit. That's not true. Absolutely not true, because the, the cause of that bad fruit 
it is ultimately a root of idolatry. Paul, talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he, he talked about how the love of money is a root of all evil. Notice he doesn't say the root. He says it's a root of all evil. Why? Because it's idolatry. That's just one form of idolatry, the love of money. And, and so here's how you know, you know what or who it is that you worship. You have to trace it back and see whatever it is that holds the highest honor, the most importance in your life, that's what you worship. And, and, so, and you worship it with all that you have. So whatever you give your time to, your energy to, your money to, your love to, your devotion to, that's your God. That's what you worship. And, and it can be true of, uh, of the living God, or it can be true of an idol that we make into God. See, I can worship the true and living God with my time, with my energy, with my money, with my love, with my devotion. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you as well. So I can worship God in that way, and he can have that first place in my life, and he should but oftentimes what happens is that because I'm a created worshiper and because I'm fallen man, that when I'm not filled with the spirit and when I'm not putting God in his rightful place, other things take the throne of my heart and those become the idols that I worship. What are your idols? What are they? See, King Nebuchadnezzar's idol was obviously power and, and glory. He's, he's all about the power and the glory. And, and for us, man, our idols are subtle. They can, be, they can be power. They can be glory. They can be position. They can be our possessions, but they can also be people. They can even be our pets, right? There are these different things that can take the throne of our heart and become the idol in our life. And for you, I want you to fill in the blank. What is the idol in your life? You say, I don't have any idols in my life. Really? Really? I, really, I want you to think about this because, because the issue is, is that, man, idolatry is enslavement to something or someone that we love. And, and idols aren't always bad things. In fact, often they're good things, but the problem is, is that we've elevated it to a God thing. Whenever you take a good thing and you elevate it to a God thing and it becomes an idol in your life, one that you worship and sacrifice, now there's a problem. And guess what God is going to put his finger on? He's going to put his finger on that thing that's an idol in your life. And I have a word from the Lord just right now as I'm speaking. The Lord's speaking to my heart and saying, some of you right now are, are experiencing a financial hardship and it's precisely because that's an idol and God won't give it to you. And so he's given you leanness. He's prescribed leanness for you because he says, I will not give you your idol to worship. That's a word from the Lord for someone here. See, idols aren't always bad things. They're often good things that we elevate to God things. So here's the fun part of the message. Let's figure out what our idols are, okay? Okay. Just, just a little trick here, a little, little, little exercise. First of all, and I, I would encourage you to write this down. If you want to find out what your idol is, define what is your personal hell. Define, write down what your personal hell is. Some of you have a poor hell. If I'm poor, that, 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 is, that is hell, living in hell for me. Some of, some of you have 
a fat hell. If I'm, if I'm fat, then, then that is just horrible death to me. Some of you have an unloved hell. And so what happens is that the fear of that self-created hell, what is hell, by the way? Because I'm throwing this word out a lot, and you say hell, and, and, it, and it's something that just, I don't know about you guys, you say that word, and it's just sort of like, ooh, I don't like that word. Hell, by its best definition, is separation from God. That's what hell is. Hell is being separated from God. And so what happens is when you have a, 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 your own self-created hell, for a Christian, hell for a Christian is I don't want to be separated from God. God, I want to be with you. I don't want to do things that separate me from you. I don't want to be separated from you for a moment. I don't want to live a lifestyle that really practically rejects you and, and find myself eternally separated from you. I want to be with you. That's, that, that, that's a biblical version of what, what a biblical hell is. And when, when we're guilty of worshiping idols, what happens is we create our own hell. And so, for instance, you know, it, you might be a woman that for you, your personal hell would be being alone. And, and so being separated from a man that you, can, that you can hang all your hopes to and cling to and trust you, he becomes your savior. And so for you, this, this hell that you've invented is if I'm separated from that man who gives me everything that keeps me from that hell, right? Well, what does that man become? He's your savior. See, that's how it works. And so what you have is it's the fear of that hell that compels you to choose for yourself a false savior God to save you from the hell that you've created. And so that false savior God is the idol in your life. And, and so you'll do whatever it takes to, to have that false savior God. Maybe you're somebody who worships money. For you, you're, the hell that you've created is being poor, not being able to pay your bills. And there's all kinds of stuff that's wrapped up in that. Sometimes, you know, this idea of not having money, it's not so much that you want stuff, it's that you want security. That's more the issue there. A lot of people, when they struggle with money, their struggle isn't that I want stuff. I mean, stuff is nice. What they really want, they want peace. Because they think if I've got money, then I've got peace. That's my security. That's my hope. Until you're someone like Steve Jobs who has like $12 billion in the bank and the doctor tells you, yeah, I can't help you. And then you realize that, that savior, it ain't a savior. You can't trust in that. See, if you're somebody who's, who's all trusting in money, then what happens is your hell is poor. And so your savior becomes, well, it becomes your job. 80, 90 hours a week poured into this thing. Why? Well, because I'm, I need the money, man. This is my savior. This is what I have to work towards. And by the way, that's the whole, all false religion comes back to your works. And so it's, I got to work. I got I to gotta, I gotta get this effort. I had a gal once, her, her personal hell was being alone. She discovered that her husband really was not quite there for her. And so she turned, and it, it was all people-oriented, so she turned from having her husband be her savior to having her children be her savior. And as her children now were growing up, what she found is that when the kids grew up and they got a little bit older, they would distance themselves from her as well. 
that the older they got, the more they got independent and the less they wanted to do with mom. So every couple of years, she wanted another kid because she wanted this, this thing that needed her. Her husband caught on. He refused. He said, I'm done. I won't have any more babies. They actually came to counsel with me. He won't give me any children. And he said, I'm not going to give her any children. The only reason she has children is because she worships them. And he was right. See, the issue is, is that we create whatever the hell is. That's hell for me. I need to have a savior that's going to deliver me from that. That's idol worship. So define your hell. What's hell for you? Another helpful tool, and you can write this down, to identify the idols that are in your life, define your fears. Define your fears. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of not having? What are you afraid of not being? What are you afraid of not doing in your life? Again, just a a helpful mental exercise. It doesn't mean that everything you're afraid of is is an idol to you. My wife's afraid of mountain lions, okay? She's not, you know, her idol isn't a 30-odd six or whatever it is that's going to deliver her from that, you know. But, but, you know, it's just a tool, Thirdly, write this down. Define your passions. What, what compels you? What motivates you? What consumes your thoughts? See, King Nebuchadnezzar, what consumed his thought was power and holding on to it. So much so that he erects a gold image and he says, this gold image is, is the, the, the rejecting of, of God himself, who he, he admitted in chapter two was, was the king of kings. But now he says, I don't like his vision for my life. I reject it, and I'm going to demand that everybody worships my reality, not God's reality. Because if I get everybody to worship, if I get everybody to go along with this, if I can get everybody to agree with me that this is the image of worship, well, then that means that I'm going to have validation by by everybody. It consumed his, his passions and his thoughts. So define your passions. What is it that compels you and motivates you and consumes your thoughts? Fourthly, write this down. Define your comforts. Uh, Where do you run to for comfort? Do you you run to drugs or alcohol for comfort? By the way, you know the comfort that comes from drugs and alcohol? It's escape. That's what what drugs and alcohol offer. It's not, it's not the, the, the feeling of being high. It's kind of like riches. It's not about the, the stuff so much as it's about the security. For drugs and alcohol, it's not about the high so much as it is I escape my reality. This is, this is my vehicle out of here. By the way, I mean, think about our relationship with the Lord. What is our great hope in the Lord? I'm going to get out of this, but we're hitting something hard. We live on the Titanic and this sucker's going down. And my great hope is that I've got a savior who I'm eagerly awaiting from heaven and he's gonna take me out of here. I get to escape this place. And that's what happens to the person who's, who's addicted to drugs and alcohol. Their issue is escape. That's what they're looking for. I wanna escape. I wanna get out. And my hell is living in the reality that I'm in and, and, and my escape. Well, guess what? My savior God becomes a bottle of booze. My savior God becomes methamphetamine. Marijuana, whatever it is. So you define your comforts. Where do you run to? You run to drugs? Do you run for alcohol? Do you run for affirmation from people? As long as you're getting, you know, all the compliments and all. It's like, you know, that's, that can be helpful. Yeah, you gotta know. 
Is it food? Do you run to food for comfort? Paul told the Philippians that some people, their God is their belly, their appetites. That's both literal and figurative. And if you watch marketing, they're masters, they're pros at idol worship. They, they make a living off of telling you that there's a hell and that you're going to live in it unless you buy their product. And, and this is one of the ways that idolatry works. It, it doesn't work, that's the problem. But, but here's how it works. There's a hell and you don't want to be in it. There's a savior, you need that savior. And all you do is you just give your time, your energy, your money, your devotion, your life, your schedule, your heart to that savior and it will save you. And so for those of you that are here today, maybe you came in saying, man, I got a drug problem. I've got an alcohol problem. I've got a lust problem. I've got a marriage problem. Listen, you do, but that's just the fruit on your tree. See, if, if, if you just pick that fruit off your tree, it's not gonna do anything good because more fruit's just gonna grow back. Jesus said a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And so we would encourage you to trace back the, 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 the issues that you've got in your life, the sin that you've got in your life, the besetting thing that you're struggling with, trace it back and find the root of your, of your idol and cut that. Turn to John chapter four. Uh, John chapter four. We'll pick it up in verse three. Jesus is leaving Judea and he departed again to Galilee. Verse four, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. They, did, they would not go to Samaria. The Samaritans were comprised of, of half-breeds and uh, those that, the Jews that had intermarried with other races. And so they reviled and, and they detested the Samaritans, if they had to go somewhere, they would walk around the city of Samaria, Samaria to get to, to where they were going. And the text tells us that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And this is such a beautiful thing because what we find is he's going to find a woman there. He, he, he needed to go through Samaria because he wanted to reach this one particular woman. And that's a whole sermon in itself, just to say to you, maybe you're in that place where you believe the enemy and you're like, I've done too much, I'm separated from God. And here we read that Jesus needed to go to minister to this woman. He needs to go minister to you. That's the thing, desire in his heart. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of God and to everlasting life. So he needed to go through Samaria, verse five, so he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the, the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, and he said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Here's the issue. Jesus is going to minister to this woman. And what he does is he says to her, I have living water. You're going to drink from this well and you're going to thirst again, but I've, I've got water that you need. Now, he's, he's not talking about the water. He's talking about her life. He's he's saying to her, look, woman, you're looking at all these places to quench your thirst. And it ain't working. And all you are is thirsty again. She's not getting it. So he says, well, let me just put my finger on that thing I'm talking about. Why don't you go get your husband? I don't have a husband. That's right. Because you're bending your life around men. You're shacking up with some guy. And you've had five husbands. And you just keep going from well to well, from place to place. And you've got all these idols in your life. And there's one thing you need. You need me, Jesus would say. See, before Jesus could quench her true thirst, he needed to first expose her idol. And I want to tell you where we're going. When we continue in Daniel chapter 3 in the coming weeks... Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that when we expose idols for what they are, and when we take a stand against them, that it opens up a huge battle with the enemy. It just unleashes the forces of hell in your life. And what you will see is when you you expose idols, and when you refuse to bow down to idols, that there is profound trial that goes through that. It exposes us to to ridicule, to threats, to fiery trials. If you doubt that, you post something about the ruling that just happened in the Supreme Court and take a Christian stance on on, on, uh, the issue of homosexuality and you watch what comes on your, your feed. The moment you take a stand against the idols that the whole world And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has everybody bowing down to this idol. They refuse to to, to bow. And the moment they take a stand, man, it's on, baby. And this is where we're going. We're going to be looking at this. We're going to see how when we take a stand and we, we will not bow to idols, that it exposes us to ridicule, to threats, to fiery trials. We're going to see the faithfulness of Jesus to go through those trials with us and to deliver us through those trials. But before we can deal with any of that... We have to settle the issue. Will I bow? Am I bowing? Do I have idols in my life? See, because before they faced trials, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had long since settled the issue of who they worshipped. 
You had to have that issue settled. I'll close with this. For me, years ago, over the years, my idol has, has been money. And, it, and it's entirely wrapped up in this issue of security. I'm a control freak. If you talk to anybody who knows me, they'll tell you I'm a control freak. And so I can try to control everything. And so for me, what I struggle with is trying to control things through money. Um, I'm also a workaholic that has partly to do with what my struggle with, with money, you know, has a tendency to be an idol in my life. It's also the fact that I just like working. Um, I have vacation time coming up, and I told Brenda, I just want to do projects around the house. That, to me, is joy. Some of you guys, that's not so much. And, and so it plays against itself, and it's a problem. And so in my life, I had a situation, just come to the Lord. And I'm trying to walk with the Lord, and I'm sitting down one night, and, and I'm, trying, I'm trying to pay my bills. And uh, that's a treat, right, when you've got more month than money. And, and I, I'm stressing out over it. I'm, I'm freaking out over it, and I, I don't see, you know, how I can get there from here. I don't see, you know, how I'm going to come up for air on this thing. And, um, and I, I just, I cried out to the Lord and I said, Lord, I need to hear from you and I need to hear from you right now. I'm desperate. I have to hear from you. And the Lord spoke to me from Isaiah 46. And this is, I don't recommend it, but this is one of those times when I just turned to open the Bible and I just put my finger down. I said, God, you need to speak with me. And he actually showed up. Here's what he said to me, Isaiah 46. I'm just going to read it for you. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. These are gods. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from my birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish out gold out of the bag and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire, they, he's talking about those that worship idols, those that worship Bel and Nebo and those that make idols to them. He says, they, these people, these worshipers of these false idols, they lavish out the gold out of the bag and the silver and all. And he says, uh, uh, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god and they prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands and from its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. God's speaking to me through this saying, you're worried about the stuff and the stuff can't save you. All it does is weigh you down. And then he said this to me, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Friends, he's God and our idols are not. And we have to get that settled before we can take a stand for the Lord. And before we can stand up against the trials and the whole world trying to press you into its mold and to get you to lay down your life, you gotta find the idols in your life and you gotta lay them down.